Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. We continue our podcasts about the war which Russia started against Ukraine. This series is brought to you by Internews Ukraine and Ukraine Crisis Media Center to Ukrainian media NGOs. My name is Vladimir Yermolenko. I'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org. Uh, we are making this podcast with Tiano Harkova, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Hello, Tanya. Hello, Vladimir. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Today we are going to touch the topic which, which often arises in our conversations with our international partners, with people who listen to us on, on different events, on different TV programs, uh, because we are constantly in this uh, you know, circulation, in this information flows on... Uh, very different media platforms uh, in on on international tv uh, radio stations in uh, in france in 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 britain in america in canada in in many other countries and we often hear the question how we can negotiate with russia so let's let's try to reflect upon it uh, do you think we can negotiate with russia Yeah, uh, today we are listening to new announcements f- coming from Russia saying that, look, uh, they uh, are changing their, their tactics, their strategy, maybe they are maybe trying to concentrate their efforts on Donbass. And we do understand this is linked to negotiations because in a way they are trying to find a kind of a stronger position. So the question is real, real one. What can be negotiated? And we also hear voices coming from the West saying that, look, In a certain point, you will be obliged to negotiate with Russia just to make some peace yeah, here in the region. And that's the question. But that's, that's why this question is, is fundamental for us. My opinion is quite clear here, and I guess uh, this is the opinion of the huge majority of Ukrainians now. What we see now is there may be a very small and quite short historical opportunity, historical window yeah, for, for a radical change on the continent. What we see now is the moment where Russia, <clears throat> which started this war in Ukraine after a series of previous wars in Transnistria, and then later in Georgia, and then later in Crimea, in part of Ukrainian territory in Donbass, and now a full-scale war in a, in a big country, so Ukraine is a big country, So, and this historical window of opportunity is about to stop this strategy of Russia, who dreams to become a kind of a regional power, and that, to switch from a regional power to a kind of a global power. So this challenge, uh, which exists now, and these, the risks and the force of the attack that Russia already exercised on, 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 on Ukraine and the level of support we do have now from our international partners, all that allows us to think that this is an opportunity to stop this strategy and to put Russia back to what it can be, it could be a regional country with a normal, peaceful politics towards neighbors. And for that, what we need, we need weapons, in Ukraine, deployed in Ukraine. We need a lot of support with that from our alias, and we need sanctions just to destroy, to ruin uh, this economic fun- f- foundation which is used now for military aggression. So, and this, uh, what is important to understand, that this period of time is historical. It will not last 
for centuries, for, for decades. It is now and here. And what we hear from, for example, Joe Biden, American president today, what he told to our minister of foreign affairs, Dmitry Kuleba, I listened to this, to his communication just several minutes ago. He said that Joe Biden, as president of the United States, understands that this war will change the century. For, I mean, for, for the continent and maybe globally. And this historical possibility, we have no right to lose this possibility just to withdraw Russia from its imperial uh, desire to restore this, uh, uh, this empire and all these uh, dreams of Russia. We can, we can stop it now and put it back to what a normal country could be without this aggressive foreign politics which is in place for many decades already. And we need an effort. We Ukrainians, we do what we can here. Our army, they are real heroes now because they are fighting the Russian army, which is bigger, bigger army in any case, for one more than one month already. And our international partners are starting to do whatever they can with sanctions and with um, weapon supply. But we all to need to do a little bit more and to, to make this decisive effort now just to stop Russia and to bring a new security agenda to the continent. Because we cannot continue. We cannot continue with these small wars which lead to another war. So what happened in Transnistria many years ago, it allowed later what happened in Georgia. And then we see, we've seen what happened in Crimea, and the silence and the pacification of Russia led directly to what, unfortunately, to what we are living now. Yes, exactly. And uh, what have we learned uh, uh, about this war already is that Ukrainians will not surrender, of course, this is clear. And Ukrainians will not live under Russian occupation. So if, if Russians enter the cities, they will face a partisan war. Uh, and we are seeing right now these tactics of Ukrainians, the increasingly partisan war on the territories that Russia occupied. So basically, Russians understand that increasingly. And we see many voices inside Russia, outside of the propaganda, like even such persons, people like Girkin, so the major Russian agent who started, who helped Russia to start the war in Donbass in 2014, right? Igor Girkin, who was this uh, former FSB officer who brought with him uh, a bunch of people who started this basically military action in, in Donbass, in Slovyansk, in Kramatorsk, and then moved to Donetsk. He is now saying that Russians are uh, experiencing a failure in Ukraine. Obviously, I mean, we can understand his motivation to criticize Russian government because he's, he, was, he, he is showing himself as much more radical than Putin, etc. And he was thinking that this Novorossiya project should have been developed in 2014 when U Ukraine was not prepared. Now he's saying, look, Ukraine is now prepared, and therefore you have this response that you have. But still we see this criticism, despite the fact that you know Russian TV, Russian media space is just erased, plurality is not possible, but even from these you know, hardliners we see uh, criticism. We see criticism from uh, lots of people like Russian propagandists or imperialists, 
uh, I have just seen on, on, on the YouTube channel of Denis Kozansky, Ukrainian journalist. He analyzed uh, Maxim Shevchenko, also a person who uh, at the early stages of the war was saying that, yeah, Ukrainians are just, you know, they will meet, you know, Russian army with flowers and we will need to denazify it. Uh, and now he's shocked and he's saying that, yes, I was wrong. But the important thing is that if Russians understand that Ukrainians, th their vision of Ukrainians was totally wrong, and I think this understanding gradually comes, the problem is that they might lead to the step of thinking that, okay, if we cannot denazify Ukrainians, we should exterminate Ukrainians. This is what, by the way, it sounds horrible for uh, for probably our international audience, but this is what they have already done uh, on numerous cases. And let's not forget about what happened in the 20th century with Holodomor, at least 4 million dead in 32, 33, the conservative figures, but other famines as well. So they are ready to exterminate Ukrainians. Exactly. But what, what uh, we should remember, uh, we should always remember about things at stake now. Because Russia started this conflict, let's come back to November, October, November uh, 2021, when Russia was um, uh, putting troops on the Ukrainian border. They were not challenging directly Ukraine at that moment. They were putting their ultimatums for the West, for, for what they call collective West. And their demands were surreal, but they were about nature. They were about, uh, look, uh, we Russia, we can... can, can make you uh, recognize that we are strong and we are on the same level as you. Remember, Putin was refusing to talk to, um, to smaller countries and with some difficulties he accepted to talk to Macron or to Olaf Scholz. He was willing to talk to the United States because he was seeing and he still see, sees uh, United States as a kind of a leader of, uh, on the global global level. And their effort was to show uh, in Ukraine, so they are using Ukraine to challenge the West. Let's not forget about that. And that's the thing you, you should, our, our audiences, people who listen to us, you should understand that Putin is not only destroying Ukraine, he is destroying Ukraine today to show you that Russia is a global, global player. You know, and this is why I'm speaking about this historical opportunity now, because never before, never before we've seen we saw such a such a huge, enormous support for Ukraine coming from all parts of the world. So if you look at how how countries vote in favor of Ukraine today, how citizens of so many countries support Ukraine and not Russia, Russia doesn't have any kind of important partners. China is ambiguous situation, but it is not a real democratic country. So what we see now, it is real historical battle between democratic, civilized world and a kind of world of tyranny, of world where such attacks against civilians are possible and normal against the world where you can exterminate people, you can kill pregnant women, you can bombard, I don't know, children, and, and this is normal. So this is, a, this is a real historical battle between two visions of what 
the life on the planet should be. So that's why exactly we cannot lose this battle because we, we cherish our lives and we do we all want to survive this war. But it's also because this is not only about Ukraine, it is also about the biggest play game. Yes, and uh, it's it's important to understand, well, we as philosophers, I'm a philosopher and Tanya is a also a philosopher, also <laughs> philosopher and a literary expert, expert in literature, in history of literature and in culture studies. But uh, uh, we like to speculate about the laws of history. And this is speculation. Historians don't like this speculation. But we philosophers think that as we are bad historians, we can afford this. Uh, but uh, from, uh, from my vision, I mean, any kind of this empire, and we talked about, about it in one of our previous conversation, uh, conversations, uh, Russia is a wounded empire. It feels like it is, it is a wounded empire. It's like empire that lost its territories and wants to get them back. But it never appeared in history. If the empire looks into the past and, and thinks that my glory is in the past and I should jump into that past to get uh, this previous glory, let's make Russia great again. I'm sorry mm -hmm. for this joke. Uh, it, it never happens. It never ha You can never jump into, into the past. You can never jump back into the past. So this is a misreading of history, misreading of human time, basically. And uh, the example of other totalitarian regimes of the 20th century, because they were all based upon, upon an idea of going back, jumping into the past, the radical jumping into mm -hmm. the past. This is what makes all those far-right regimes in Italy, in Germany, in Spain in 20th century, kind of a radical or revolutionary conservatism. Right, so uh, conservatism in the way that you should revolutionary jump into the past, revolutionary by by violence, for example, and Italians wanted to restore the Roman Empire. Germans wanted to, to restore the Roman Empire of German nation uh, of the medieval times. Uh, Francoists wanted to restore the empire of I don't know Charles V or whatever. Russians want want to do the same, and it will fail. And that's what, what, what our audience uh, has to understand. It will definitely fail. So the Russians are making this mistake and Ukrainians are the force that will make it fail. Another important thing which is linked to what you are talking about now is this, uh, is this historical guilt. You know, what the problem with Russia is also that it never recognized, at, at least in recent history, in recent centuries, the guilts it committed the crimes it committed against uh, people, against other countries, and against its own population. Look what happened to, to Nazis uh, Germany in 20th century after the end of this big war. Yeah, it was a decades of decades of uh, reparations paid to other countries, decades of this historical guilt and recognition of what you've done. To, Azica, to many other countries. And what happened to totalitarian regime in Russia, and where is the root of this problem, is that never Soviet Russian and post-Soviet Russia never recognized the communist crimes against its own uh, population. It never happened. So, And when you never punish a regime and you never punish a country uh, and responsible people for what they've done, you are almost sure to have this again. So and Russia lives in this feeling of uh, uh, untruly, uh, untruly punished by historical obstacles. So they, for example, Putin, he considers 
the decomposition, decomposition of Soviet Union, as as he said, one of the most uh, important geographical uh, tragedies of the 20th century. So for him, it's like a, like a, let's let's make USSR great again. You know, it's only and and people support that because they don't have this uh, this this feeling of guilt for what they are. Grandma, grandfathers were responsible for. This is important thing. And what we can do now, and what is to do now, is to make Russia lose this war. But this is not the only goal. The next goal would be to make it recognize the crimes it committed in, in Transnistria, in Georgia, in Ukraine, in Crimea, and then on the whole territory of Ukraine, and, and make them pay for that in terms of money, maybe for reconstruction. And when a whole generation, or maybe even two generations, will pay. I remember reading somewhere that Germany was paying the reparation for many decades, and they started doing that not so far, not so long ago, in fact. So many, maybe, maybe in 2000-something. So when your country, when your population pay for what your, your people, what your country, what your state did in the past, you understand that you are responsible in a way. So um, I'm also always impressioned by, the, by this irresponsibility of Russia, and it comes directly from the fact that they, never, they were never punished for what they did in the past. So if now we have this possibility, historical possibility, to make them fail, the, make, make them lose the war, and then to pay for all the crimes they committed in, 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 in Ukraine, it will be a good lesson and the necessary lesson for Russians, I mean, for, for maybe one or two generations. And we will never see in what we see today in, in Voice of America or any, any other foreign media vox pops, in what they do in, when they ask today, for example, people in the States, what do you think about this war? They will not say you that, oh, it, it's justified war or something like that. When it, it will be a good historical lessons, lesson. And I'm almost sure that a different Russia is possible. Like, like a different Germany is, was possible after, the, after Hitler, after all these terif- terrible things which happened during the Second World War. So a different approach, a, a different feeling of guilt and responsibility. I think it will change everything on the continent. Let's hope so. But uh, in Germany, there is a humanistic tra- tradition, intellectual humanistic tradition. There is German Enlightenment. There is Let huma- the Russians use their humanistic tradition, Immanuel their big Kant, literature, great yeah. literature. The problem is with Russian literature is that it, in many cases, well, th- there are cases, of course, of, of good things, but in many cases, it has prepared Russian society for what's going on now. Yeah, but we, this is a close subject. Crime and punishment. You know, yes. So they're classics. So we, what we see now, this is a total... Uh, absolute crimes. Let it be punished. Let all that lead to a punishment. Yeah, but let's remember Dostoevsky. This was well, this is one of the, your favorite topics. You can e- elaborate on that because you wrote uh, well before these events. I think in 2015 or 16, you wrote a text. What does it mean to have a crime without punishment and punishment without crime? Yeah. Basically, this is this is what good Russian literature was reflecting up- upon your favorite Daniel Harms, for example. But really, I think the Dostoevsky's crime in punishment is the, is the end of the big European humanistic tradition of saying that after crime, there should be redemption. This is tradition which goes from Balzac to Victor Hugo to 
many other French literature, which Dostoevsky, for example, translated. But what we see in the crime and punishment, in my interpretation, is that he disassociates punishment with the crime. He just says there is there can be no uh, externally imposed punishment for for the murder. The only punishment can be your uh, your remorse, uh, your internal remorse, conscious, and then some religious transfiguration. So okay. there is nothing uh, in in the external world, in the legal world. Nothing legal. Yeah. In the legal world, there can be no legal, you know, uh, punishment for a crime, and that's horrible. I think this, you know, Russian internal this kind of a uh, this focus so much on some deep individual deep psychological spiritual, spiritual yeah. things well it can of course inspire some people but it's just erasing the clear thing which is a question of proportion that we asked many times in this podcast the, the question of legal proportion that if there is a crime there should be punishment and uh and really, and and on the other side, on the other side, this topic of punishment without the crime, which we have seen in the Soviet Union, which is basically we are experiencing now, because yeah, Russians exactly. are saying we are punishing Ukrainians for what crimes? All for crimes that we invented, that we fantasized about. Yeah. This is the punishment for inexisting crime, but they are sure that this is a punishment. This is exactly absolutely you are absolutely right because what we've seen in Russian literature in the beginning of 20th century during the beginning of this totalitarian time there were a very uh, very popular um, popular idea of this punishment without crime what 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 happens when you live in a totalitarian society you are punished all the time and you committed no crime in fact but you are punished by the absence of, of of freedom by 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 the lack of everything you need etc etc and this is this was a kind of very important um, transformation yeah the great, great question of 19th century crime and punishment and really all these 70 years Years of Soviet unity was punishment without crime, but at the same time, uh, what Russia shows us today, this crime without punishment, and what we, I was talking about, uh, talk, um, talking about Transnistria and Georgia and Crimea, what we, we are, uh, we can testimony that we see that, so we have this memory of our only our generation. We are, uh, we were there, and we know we know that Russia is proceeding by making crimes for which. It's not punished. And then she, it continues and it escalates, you know. Today we are talking about what? We are talking about chemical weapons. It can be deployed in, in, in Ukraine, in the central of Europe. You can deploy chemical uh, warfare and you expect not to be punished for that. And you are justifying that but by imaginary imaginary crimes of, I don't know, Ukrainian nationalists or Ukrainian Nazis. There is no Ukrainian Nazis and no Ukrainian nationalists. So this is an important philosophical question that we should now stop and say that there will be no crimes without punishment, no metaphysical um, metaphysical things, but legal ones. And um, we are. I was always astonished uh, when I saw that there is a kind of fascination coming from the West to this Russian soul because they do under, do feel this Russian alterity, Russian difference, you know, from this Western world. And what seems to be boring for our audience, maybe just boring legal, you know, uh, legal contracts, you know, legal punishments, you know, courts and procedures. They might seem boring for you. 
and this is why you are so much delighted by this Russian idea, you know, of these metaphysical and spiritual depths, you know, and not by the legal procedures. But the other side of that is that what we see now, because they do hope now to avoid any kind of legal punishment for what they are doing. And that's why the dream of all Ukrainians now is not only to kill Putin and just to, for him to, to, to be dead, but, but to see how he will respond for everything they've done in Ukraine, in Mariupol, for example, for all those kids killed in Ukraine for nothing at all. And look and, and look at the, the lexics, basically, we also studied it uh, at many occasions, this famous uh, slogan of, of uh, Russian mass culture, and then repeated by Putin himself, в чем сила, брат, сила в правде? Where is the force, brother? The, the force is in pravda. Pravda can be interpreted as truth, can be interpreted as justice. It's it's a phrase which comes from uh, the movie Brother Two, which was uh, in early 2000, which was basically was one of the beginnings of this dehumanization of uh, bo uh, both Americans and Ukrainians. Yes, basically. exactly. And uh, and Putin repeated this phrase when, in one of the interviews when he was talking about uh, occupation of Crimea. But this very concept Pravda. It's basically, um, wh when we look at this movie and then Putin's interview, is uh, it's neither truth nor justice. It's the feeling that you are right. Mm -hmm. It's the subjective feeling that you are right. So if you have a subjective feeling that you are right, then two things disappear. First, facts disappear because pravda is not truth but it's your subjective feeling that you are right. And second, justice disappears, but you, because you're feeling that you are right, and therefore no other external instance, no international courts, whatever, can have a trial on you, can have say that you are not right. It's a kind of metaphysical truth, you know, in a way, so it doesn't rely on anything in real. At the same time, uh, this uh, this no notion of force is very important. When, for example, we look at, at, at international journalists or even Russian journalists asking people in the streets in, in Russia, what do you think about what's happening? And, uh, for example, why do you think that Russia doesn't have any any allies, any partners in the international, in any country, almost no country, almost no countries who support Russia today in its war in Ukraine. And their responses, they uh, quite often they refer to the force. This is because Russia is a strong country and nobody likes strong countries. So they try to see the situation in kind of who is stronger, you know, this uh, some Darwinist view of uh, of what's happening. So we are strong, that's, where, that's why we are disliked, but we are right. So we are right, we, we have this this notion because we are right and this we are strong. And we are disliked and isolated because we are strong and that's why we have the right to fight for, for our place on this global, uh, this global theater. Yes, and uh, what you mentioned is Russian attitude to the empire, to its own empire, <clears throat> to the decolonization, to the de-imperialization, to this feeling of guilt which is absent in Russian discourse, indeed. And uh, I think it's it's also we have seen how they express attitude to the Western decolonization. Why, for example, this very pejorative 
reflections upon uh, all this Black Lives Matter movement, etc. They could cancel culture. Yeah, th th they were saying that look, this is this is the problem of decolonization. You should never go into the decolonization logic. You should. You, th this was a mistake by the Western world. Therefore, they they are just too weak. And we are strong. We will keep our empire. We will never decolonize. We will never deimperialize. And this is also very important because it has a d direct relation to Ukraine, right? Mm -hmm. And they read, I remember the book of André Glucksmann, uh, The Tyranny of uh, Repentance. No, it's it's a book by Pascal Bruckner. Oh, sorry, sorry, Pascal Bruckner, uh, Tyranny of, uh, how you say that? Repentance, Wait, yes. Repentance, no? Uh, about uh, it, it was about these modern European uh, European and Western societies which were uh, feeling uh, guilt, historical guilt to, towards uh, societies and countries which were colonized. Um, and he was pointing out all the exaggerations in a way uh, and saying that look, the US, they were strong, you were strong, and 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 and. Um, in the past, but now this uh, feeling of guilt is everywhere. And he was in a way criticizing uh, Western societies for that. But what we see in Russia, this is the direct opposite of this guilt. There is no guilt at all. And no recognition of any crime committed against uh, any colonized nation. Like, Uh, we've never heard anything told about what they've done with Ukrainian culture, in, starting from centuries, but in 19th century, many bands. We've never heard anything about uh, Holodomor, about millions of Ukrainians who died during these 30, late, early 30s. Nothing about, um, uh, about Chernobyl as well, because it, it was a Soviet empire in a way. And Once again, the same idea that this absence of, of punishment leads directly to the absence of sentiment of guilt, which is absolutely inexistent in Russia. Let's hear something. In our podcast, we will try to also to spend some five to seven minutes in each episode about Russian disinformation, Russian propaganda. Although uh, my feeling is that the word disinformation is not a good word because it's not about lies. It's something deeper. I think it's about primarily dehumanization. It's about the narrative that dehumanizes uh, Ukrainians, Europeans, Americans, etc. The, the moral thing in this Russian propaganda is much more important than this, you know, just the, the level of lies, disinformation, hiding facts, etc. But let me also go to this fact that the, this word pravda, it just replaces two other, which are the factual factual concept facts. Uh, facts which is truth but also the concept of justice the concept of moral and legal and therefore they are replacing all that for example uh, just to, uh, the orthodox church how the orthodox church is acting itself one of such priests that we quote in our monitoring you can see to now a twitter ukraine world under the hashtag gray zone which we do with our partners text or ua is saying that a Russian invasion is a necessary surgery against Ukrainian cancer. Uh, the war in Donbass was a, quote, huge wound, which, quote, produced lots of metastases. The surgery of such a chronic disease cannot be simple. This is one of the, one of the priests that says. So he's basically justifying 
the all all possible atrocities because it's against you know Ukrainian cancer. Also, uh, we see lots of quotes. The special operation aims to protect peaceful population of Donbas, you know, and uh, it's also only directed against Nazis. So, when they bomb maternity hospitals, when they bomb uh, residential areas, when they erase uh, the city of Mariupol, when they just shell heavily Chernihiv, Kharkiv, this is just a protection of peaceful population. And I wonder why why they're attacking Russian Russian speaking cities, why they're not attacking. I don't know, Western Ukrainian cities, maybe they will, we don't know. But they are just killing people whom they want to protect. The Russian-speaking people in Mariupol, Russian-speaking people in Kharkiv. And my answer to this question is that they just don't care. They don't care about Russian-speaking people. They even don't care about Russians themselves. Yeah. Because the question is, okay, Ukrainians are saying Russia lost over 15,000 people. Uh, already dead. Americans are saying, well, probably 16. Americans are saying, well, probably less, probably, I don't know, what is the figure in American estimates, but it's a little bit lower. Russians said yesterday they have lost 1,300 something, I think. The question is, what what is the memory of these remaining 15,000 or 10,000? Because they never report about it. They will they will go to the to the mothers of these mostly kids and say you should shut up, right? I think that they uh, what is clear is that they are instrumentalizing all kind of information. It's linked to postmodernism. They are affirming that there is no reality, but just a versions of reality, and that started back in 2014, and where they were presenting maybe five or six versions of what happened to MH17, not just to affirm, uh, to say that our version is that happened because of that, but just to to make this kind of, kind of possibilities. For them, it looks like re- reality itself doesn't exist. When they, for example, they take people from Mariupol now and they are... Putting, uh, t- transporting them to Russia, and then they they are making these people tell on camera that this was Azov battalion who was bombarding Mariupol. It they are writing just another version of the realities because for them the reality itself it doesn't exist, it doesn't matter, and is this is linked to this modernization, to this postmodernism, to this philosophy of multiple um, roles. I don't know m- multiple realities. Say I affirm that n- nothing is real and everything is possible, as Peter Pomeranz of put it many years ago already in in link uh, with what was happening in Ukraine by the way so they are creating this kind of possible uh, numerous realities which could exist you know and there is no truth in all that you know everything is possible so they might you might present the same fact in a different manner and it will be absolutely different situation and that's why we have to come back to reality also maybe the lesson of this war there is no other no other interpretation of what is happening in Mariupol than the Russian army bombarding people in Mariupol. That's what's happening. So we have to come back. I mean, not only Russia, but we also in Ukraine and in our Western partners. We have to come back to reality and to see things what they are and to respond questions which are logical in this situation. So who is responsible for it? What can be done about that? What direct actions can be taken? So this is important to come back to this speculative, you know, philosophy of, of what's happening and to come back to reality because we are losing reality. And that's why all these complotist theories are 
are flourishing everywhere because people they don't like to to look what is what is ordinary so life is ordinary and reality is ordinary you know and that's why people in our virtual reality they like to look it's much more interesting to invent something more original you know we have to come back to what is happening really yes yes uh, i fully agree uh, so what else our question of this podcast can we negotiate with russia and uh, one of my arguments since 2014 was that if the western world is focused on uh, the logic of positive sum game russia is focused not even on the logic of zero sum game but on the logic of negative sum game the logic of positive sum game presumes that we um, enter into transactions and hope everybody will win and the key question is who will win more and the key intrigue is that i want to win more than others the the negative sum game is a question it's totally different question and this is what i think the world misunderstands about russia it's a question that we enter into transact transaction where everybody will lose and the key intrigue that i should lose less than you than all the others russians know that they will lose in ukraine basically that uh, they will suffer from sanctions etc but they want to make ukrainians suffer more than russians russians will suffer it's okay but ukrainians will suffer more at the present moment it's true because they have their mcdonald's closed and we have the our babies killed so there's a difference at that moment but we we do hope that the game will yeah, change yeah so so the, the the game will change when when russians will Uh, at least suffer much at least economically uh, but also also on the battlefield and politically so what we need now we need really this uh, strong effort coming from everywhere in in the world i mean not only from ukraine and partners but but the the constant effort just to use Uh, to use this historical opportunity, it will not present itself in in a decade. I'm almost sure that what we see now is a historical change to to end the game, to end this uh, game which lasted for already several decades, at least after the um, the end of the Soviet Union, and apart from and first, it's a, it is possible. So people possible. are so afraid of Russia, but Ukrainians are showing that. You you should not be afraid of Russia. That Russian army, Russian strength is overestimated, and that you can really fight against Russia. And it is possible. It is feasible, and uh, that basically. <laughs> and this is possible even if you have less resources than they do, and the Western West. Western countries, they have much more resources than Russia do, so you will be even much more effective. So the answer to the question, can we negotiate with Russia? Yes, but after the victory over Russia. So the best negotiation with Russia would be after Russia loses the war. Yes, they need to have a motivation for negotiate, the motivation to go from a hell in which they, they, they should find themselves. Because their tactics is different. Their tactics is coercion to, to peace, to create huge problems for everybody and then negotiate. This was the result uh, of these tactics was Minsk agreements. Therefore, Ukrainians were so much against these Minsk agreements. We can do the same with Russia, coercion to peace and going to the logic of very important losses, political, military, economic, and then push them to negotiate to at least go away from these losses. Uh, and all the other tactics which was used by, for example, Europeans, 
all these negotiations, compromises, Nord Stream 2, gas supplies, well, we see that it doesn't work. What you see as a compromise, Russia is seeing as a weakness, as your weakness, and they continue uh, uh, their, uh, their tactics. We will finish on that. This is, was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a co-production of Internews Ukraine and Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Tichano Harko, who is in charge of international outreach of Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Uh, my name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org. Follow us on Twitter. We are very active on Twitter, Ukraine World. Facebook, uh, also uh, Instagram. And uh, follow our podcast on SoundCloud, Google uh, Podcast, Apple Podcast, and YouTube. And uh, you can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.